Hey, it's Arrow. PodFest brings together three different conversations from musicians to authors, doctors, environmentalists to cooks in their own kitchen. These are real people with real stories. PodFest 51 features rock music historian Greg Renoff, whose book from 2015 is still inspiring all fans and followers of Van Halen. Then we're off to a good time with actor H. John Benjamin, the voice of Bob from Bob's Burgers. Our third conversation is with one half of the fame team, Hall & Oates, the legendary Daryl Hall. This is PodFest 51. We are unplugged and totally uncut with a lifelong Van Halen fan who's dedicated the last six years of his life making a book that will become the band's legacy. Van Halen Rising, how a Southern California backyard party band saved heavy metal. Greg Renoff. That little rock and roll band of yours that you've written a book about is in the classic rock news today. They have had a busy year, I and mean, it was all a uh, bit of good luck on my part with the timing, but yes, it's been a very busy year for Van Halen. It's, that's a good thing, because, you know, there for a while, they kind of disappeared off the charts, and you sit there, and what I mean by the charts, the, the, the love for classic rock, the love for good rock, period. And it, and it just seems like that now that Eddie has kind of stepped out of his shell, it's a, it's a brand new band again. It really is interesting to see how those guys have uh, kind of the power sort of shifted in the band where Eddie, you know, he's, it's his band now. I mean, it's clear that Roth is there at the behest of Eddie, and it's really interesting to see that going on. And it's great to see Eddie sober and making great music, and he's just uh, killing it this year, absolutely killing it. They were the band that, when I was a kid, I had the Runaways up on the wall, and then this new band called Van Halen came out, and they were the ones, uh, every poster on my wall came down and Van Halen went up. I've been with them since the very beginning. So when did your journey begin with them? Yeah, I started uh, really my journey with Van Halen in 1984. I heard Jump on the Radio. I'd probably heard Pretty Woman before, but I heard Jump on the Radio and then saw the video on MTV. And uh, it's funny, I was in uh, my... uh, homeroom class and the kid behind me mentioned that he had a ticket to see Van Halen because his brother had gotten him one and uh, he didn't really like Van Halen and so he set the hook pretty good on me and uh, lo and behold I ended up paying $50 for this ticket in 1984 which is a lot of money my mother was outraged that I had taken the money out of the bank to do that but uh, once I saw them live it was all over for me Eddie was so uh, incredible as a performer and as a musician and of course Roth at that point was absolutely at the peak of his uh, cultural power I and mean, there's nothing you know no, nothing and nobody who was uh, bigger and better than David Lee Roth as a front man or as a, as a just a just a power uh, and it was just a mind-blowing experience for a 14 year old kid and I was I was done after that and uh, it's funny you bring up the runaways in the, in the book Van Halen Rising I talk um, about my interview with Jackie Fox, who was one of the people who was turning Gene Simmons on to Van Halen when Gene was looking for a band to try to groom and to put on a record label. Uh, Jackie and Lita both knew Paul and Gene, and uh, in 1976, they were telling Gene, hey, if you're looking for a band, you should check out this band, Van Halen. And uh, as, as we all know, Gene tried his best to get Van Halen a record deal, but it didn't happen, and Jackie was one of the people who was putting the bug in his ear about Van Halen. He's always bragged about putting David Lee Roth in his first pair of leather do you do you really believe that? Well, that's what I printed in the book. I mean, that's what uh, that's what uh, Dave uh, mentioned in his book, and that's what Gene Gene said. I don't know if it was his first pair of leather pants, but uh, 
the story goes that when they went to New York to record the album, uh, they weren't planning on auditioning. And then it, the opportunity came to audition for Bill O'Coin, which was Kiss's manager. And so they were working on this demo recording. And then Gene said, OK, you're going to audition. So he bought them clothes. Um, you know, Gene has uh, has never passed up an opportunity to tell a story about Van Halen and uh, Gene Simmons, as you know. And yet and yet they're so quick to push aside the fact that uh, Eddie Van Halen wanted to become a part of Kiss. And they said, no, you're too big for this. Yeah, you know, that's a whole that's a story that's really kind of hard to make make sense of. Eddie has never really um, discussed that at any length. It would be interesting if someone could pin him down and talk about what that was all about. From what I was able to kind of piece together, it's likely that Gene had an interest at least in having Eddie and Alex maybe help him write music or do other things. I don't know if, if uh, you know, maybe Gene thought, well, if Ace goes completely south on me in 1977 or 78, I'd have Van Halen in my back pocket to bring those guys in. Um, but there's no question that also what happened is that in 1977, Gene had Eddie and Alex play on a demo that he was doing to prepare for the Kiss Love Gun album. And what ended up happening with those songs is they were finished. Um, you know, the demo recordings, and then when Kiss had their box set in the works, so about 10 years ago, Eddie and Alex were asked by Gene, would you let me put these songs on the record? Um, one of them being Christine 15, and uh, in the box set, excuse me, and Eddie and Alex unfortunately said no, so we never got to hear those recordings, which would be amazing. Well, they've got out there today. They've released a a version of a, of a Kiss song that Van Halen did, and the song is uh, "All the Way." and And to hear uh, Eddie Van Halen play that guitar, and and to it's they're not impersonating Kiss, but you can tell that there was a connection there. Yeah, it's interesting. That's uh, something I've been using for the uh, book promotion there as well. And excuse me, one of the things that you, you uh, have on that tape is that actually it's it's Dave who says to the uh, the crowd before the recording starts, uh, he says, uh, you know, uh, this is a band Kiss, and there's sort of this mumbling. And he's like, they've got three albums out, you know, kind of reflecting the fact that Kiss was not huge at that time. But Dave knew all the lyrics of that song, and I think Dave was the guy who actually really liked Kiss the most. Um, I think he was more into the glitter and the glam rock at that point than Eddie and Alex. And but uh, yeah, it's uh, those guys really did go to the uh, the uh, classic rock college of knowledge with all their different cover songs. They covered everybody from Edgar Winter to Bad Company to Kiss to Led Zeppelin. Those guys learned from the best. Oh, and, and, and David Lee Roth, is. I, there was an interview that I heard recently where he talked about that the reason why he did the solo project was because he, he loves so many different styles of music that he just wanted to show the world that, hey, look, I, I just want to give this to you. Yeah, the uh, the great thing I did for the book, Van Halen Rising, is I interviewed Ted Templeman, and uh, Templeman was very adamant about the fact that when Dave approached Warner Brothers in late 1984 and proposed Ted Templeman and saying, I want to do this EP, he was 100% clear that he did not want to compete with Van Halen. It was not going to be heavy guitars and it was going to really be a tribute to the types of songs that Dave grew up with. You know, everything from, as we, as we know, from uh, you know Beach Boys to all the way down the line, the different range of musical taste uh, that Dave had. And that's, but that's the other thing, too, is that when Dave joins the band. Uh, Dave has a very, very different musical taste and approach to music than Eddie and Alex. Eddie and Alex are much more into Black Sabbath and Grand Funk since the early 70s. And Dave's much more into James Brown and uh, the Beach Boys. And you sort of bring all that together and you end up with Van Halen. But when Sammy Hagar was brought into the picture, it's almost like David led him to the pop charts, but Sammy Hagar took him to the top. Do you, yeah. It was, it was almost like, like Eddie loved being very popular. 
It's interesting, yeah. I mean, I think the thing is that all along in the 80s, in the early 80s, I say all along for those early years before Sammy joined, Templeman and Abe seemed to be pretty hesitant about Eddie's keyboard uh, adventures. And so Eddie would come up with these different little songs that had keyboards in them, and those guys turned them down. He's, uh, most famously, of course, Jump in 1982. Eddie played them a demo, and they were like, well, we don't want you playing keyboards. You're a guitar hero. And I think once Dave and Ted were out of the picture for Eddie, uh, you know, he was able to really explore that side of his musicality. And uh, there's no question that Van Halen became a super successful pop group in the late 80s. I mean, they're all, what, two or three, maybe four albums went to number one on the charts with Sammy, I can't remember. Um, At least two of them did and uh, sold millions of records. And uh, very different band. Oh, and I, I love the story that Sammy shares about. He calls up Eddie and he says, "Man, you need to write something on that piano that sounds like John Lennon's Imagine." And and then that that just opened up Eddie's heart right on the right on the spot. Eddie Eddie uh, as a songwriter, I think, is really. You know, maybe a little bit underrated by people because everyone focuses on what a virtuoso he is. But if you think about it, he wrote everything from what we would consider kind of straightforward heavy metal songs to a real pop songs like Dance the Night Away or any of the stuff he did to write, any of the stuff he did with Hagar. Um, they're, they're pop songs. And uh, that was another thing that Templeman really emphasized to me. He said, you know, he said, you know, Eddie was this guy who could play great heavy metal when you wanted him to. But he said he had this pop pop vision and uh, Dave helped him with that obviously and really helped bring that into the fore but there's no question Eddie was the guy who wrote the music and deserves a lot of credit for that it's, it's almost like people go oh Eddie he's such a jerk but it's like the guy owns the right to be a jerk I, I think that if he wants to take his time coming down to the studio I think he owns that right you know, I think it's you know it's it's the thing about Eddie that people sort of maybe miss out on, and again, it's in the book, is that uh, Eddie was a, a rock star in Pasadena by the time he was 15, 16 years old. So I sort of mean like he was seen by all the kids and all the high schools as the best player in town. And that's something I think that you sort of, when you begin with that and then you move forward to your life, I imagine that's a pretty hard thing to sort of come to grips with, with everyone telling you you're so great. Uh, I will also tell you that Eddie, from what everyone I ever talked to, said was a nice guy, Templeman even, who has really had much of a relationship with Eddie, I don't think, over the last 10 years. Um, he said he's a nice guy. Everyone will say Eddie's a nice guy. I think that uh, you know, we all have our moments. Unfortunately, when you're Eddie Van Halen, they get put under a microscope and get dissected to death. And uh, you know, we all say things we regret. I'm sure Eddie has said some things about Michael Anthony and others that he probably would take back on that. Yeah, it's, it's almost like a, a true Van Halen fan is is so forgiving of, of that little battle between Michael and even David Lee and stuff like that. It's almost like it's almost like it, it's a continuation of we are a rock band and we're not made to get along with each other. Yeah, we're going to fight every now and then, but that's what makes our music great. They uh, they were fighting from the uh, the get-go. I had, uh, I had Michael Anthony in his interview with me tell me that... Uh, about fights in the band. And I said, well, Eddie and Dave must have fought. So I said this to Michael Anthony. He said, yeah, they fought. He said, but uh, Alex and Eddie had the most most uh, severe fights. I said, oh, really? So what were those like? He said, well, Alex was bigger than Eddie. He was a stronger, more physical guy. And then uh, inevitably, Alex would end up on top of Eddie and we'd be punching him in the head. And uh, But he said he was always very careful not to hurt his fingers. He didn't want to hurt his hands. So they wouldn't have to miss any gigs to lose any money. But, you know, I think there was that passion that you're talking about, that intensity, whether it's in a marriage or any other relationship, that really... Um, can be so powerful you're going to have a lot of uh, negative moments that generate a lot of uh, a lot of friction and they definitely had that in Van Halen I was I was on the air up in Billings Montana KOOK when when Eddie Van Halen goes up and he does a little stint at Farm Aid and there was rumors that Sammy Hagar was up there with them and I'm telling you the rumble that was going through radio at that moment was really unbelievable 
The thing I think now as we look at at maybe the last chapters of Van Halen, I don't say that with any sort of um, glee, but I think we know, like any of these other bands, they're certainly in their twilight of their careers. It's easy to forget that in 1985, Eddie Van Halen was by by any stretch of the imagination the most um, well-loved guitar player in the entire world, a rock guitar player. And so, yeah, this whole moment where in the summer of 1985, we find out that Dave is out and then we find out, oh, they might be getting a singer named Sammy Hagar. And they came out and they did uh, Rock and Roll of Farm Aid. I remember that very well, seeing that on television. It was so uh, electric. I mean, it really was an electric moment. And uh, just you knew it was something, a birth of something new. And these guys obviously had a chemistry and it, it produced. I mean, there's no question about it. There's a, a lot of bands who replace their lead singer and it goes very, very south. But Van Halen's one of the few maybe like Deep Purple and some other bands were able to make that change and then eventually develop uh, even a bigger following. Well, and, and, you know, and I think one of the one of the the lost moments in Van Halen history, and I thought the dude did good, the lead vocalist of Extreme. I thought he did great with the band. Yeah, you know, that's a really a, a tough moment, I think, for a lot of Van Halen fans. I, I just think that it's, you know, when you go to a third singer, right, it's really hard for a lot of people to get a... Get, uh, Energized about oh we're going to do this again with a third singer, and I also think that that album musically was almost like an Eddie Van Halen solo record. Uh, the way I think about it is that probably Sammy and Dave probably had the uh, the power in the band to tell Eddie no we're not going to do this or I don't like this and that Eddie would listen. I'm guessing Gary probably felt much more under um, you know under the uh, the sway of Eddie Van Halen as a person. So when Eddie proposed some things that maybe in the past might not have made the cut, Eddie was able to put those on a record, but. Uh, uh, Gary's a great singer, and uh, I love the extreme records, and I think it's just uh, one of those those things that just didn't work as well as it could have, maybe. Do you think Van Halen has fallen out of the ranks of, and I'll, I'll give this, a, it's going to be kind of a long question, the Beatles broke up, never got back together, Led Zeppelin, you know it's never going to happen again, mm-hmm. but Van Halen, because they did, in their own way, get back together, have they fallen out of the ranks of being, oh, they're that greatest band of all time? And I think what happens is, is that when they come back like that, it's almost like our imaginations are filled up again rather than wow what would it be like if they did you know it's it's really that is a hard question I think one of the things I really do respect about Robert Plant is that Plant's willing to say you know I can sing those Zeppelin songs one night two nights three nights four nights maybe but I can't do it for a whole tour and I'm not going to go out there and try to milk that legacy Um, you know for in terms of what has happened I, I personally think the biggest problem with Van Halen's legacy has been all these ups and downs they've had over the years where you know, Sammy's in, Sammy's out, Gary's in, Dave's in, Dave's out, and there hasn't really been this continuity with the band. Um, and I think that to have these guys out and touring now, I think it's I think it's clear, at least in Eddie's mind, that Dave is the person who most people who were Van Halen fans um, would prefer. I don't think that, you know, that's a, that's a huge split where it's 90-10, but I think there's probably some you know, if you took a vote among Van Halen fans, I think most people would probably prefer Roth as the, the front man because that's the Van Halen they sort of came, to, came of age with. But, um, you know, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, bands like the Beatles who never got back together, you sort of have that, as you said, that imaginary vision of the band as, as it once was, whereas today we can go and look at David Lee Roth and Eddie Van Halen together and have a have a nostalgia trip through their performance today. Do you think it was a bad marketing decision for Eddie to come out and say that he married Valerie Bertinelli? Because, I mean, there was that female base mm-hmm. that was building and building, and for girls to be loving some heavy metal was hot. Mm-hmm. And, and all of a sudden, their rock god had a wife. 
Well, from what I understand from people who sort of spoke to me off the record about this um, when I did interviews for the book, and there was there was definitely people in the band who were, um, if they could have vetoed the marriage to Valerie, would have vetoed it. And I think you're right. It's not because they thought Valerie was a bad person or anything like that, or maybe they didn't like her. It was just the sense that once you get married, right, it's just this, uh, you're off to a different um, path as a musician and as a rock star. And I definitely think that that... Um, would have been something that, yeah, that certainly, I think some people at Warner Brothers too probably would have been, and this is probably isn't preferable. We probably rather prefer these guys to be the four wild, groupie chasing rock stars, at least in everyone's imaginations, even if that's not the way it always was. So what's in your book that's going to make everybody go, oh my God, I didn't know that. Well, where do we start? I mean, I think we start <laughs> first of all with uh, the fact that the reason I wrote this book a Van Halen fan, I'm a historian and a writer, and I was really thinking that there was a lot more that needed to be said about their formation in their early years in Pasadena. Uh, Van Halen comes out of nowhere in 1978, sort of blows everybody's minds. They blow Sabbath off the stage, they offstage Journey, their album sold two million copies, and my question to myself was, uh, well, how did this happen? Van Halen didn't just suddenly become Van Halen uh, in 1978. And so I take everyone back to the late 60s and early 70s and talk about how Eddie and Alex had their own groups could play full sides of live at Leeds, um, the first Black Sabbath record, any other record you can think of at the time, note for note. Again, Eddie's 15 years old and people are just dropping their jaws in Pasadena. Again, these are these are kids seeing this, of course, and they can't get over the fact that I just saw the Woodstock movie last week in the theater and Eddie's playing I'm Going Home by 10 years after, note for note just like they played it in the movie. Um, and then, so continuing on, I talk a lot about how Dave ends up joining the band and how Dave really played that pretty strategically. I think Roth was a guy who was determined to become a rock star. He saw Eddie and Alex in town playing and knew these guys were the best musicians around and really uh, angled and worked to get in the band, even though Eddie and Alex did not like Dave and didn't think he could sing. But eventually, Dave sort of won them over. Um, talk about things as well in the book about a lost show that no one really knows about, but everyone should know about. In 1976, a little band called UFO comes to Southern California, and what ends up happening is that they think they're going to make a whole bunch of money playing at this little concert hall in uh, Los Angeles called the Golden West Ballroom, and they've hired some bar band to open for them. And uh, that band was Van Halen, and Van Halen came out loaded for bear and blew away UFO. Um, pissed off those guys so much they broke their instruments as they left the stage. <laughs> and uh, we can continue on and on. But these were years of Van Halen's history that were lost. And, and kind of getting back to what you said earlier about the legacy, I mean, that was the other motivation. I hear people all the time telling me how great Zeppelin is and how great the Beatles are. And there's no question these groups are great. But I would say, you know, Van Halen's great too. And uh, I think by trying to unearth these five or so years where Van Halen was Van Halen from 73 to 78, where no one really knew much about them for those, most of those years. Um, that, to me, is, is going to be the eye-opening for a lot of people when they read Van Halen Rising. How much longer before a movie's made out of this? <laughs> well, you know, I, I think the big challenge about that, if you think about it, is that Eddie and Alex would have to say yes. And in addition, probably Warner Brothers. Um, I, I would uh, certainly love to see a screenplay written for this book. I think it's a great story, just like The Runaways movie, just like a straight out of Compton movie. Yeah. I think there's the same type of story there. Um, but you have to get the parties to uh, to agree to do it. Um, but yeah, Count Me In is one of the people who wants to see it made. It's a great American success story. The immigrant brothers come straight from Holland, come to America, they don't speak English, and they dedicate themselves to their craft. They meet this really, really outlandish guy named David Lee Roth, who's got his own vision for what he wants to do with his life. And these different factors come together, and those guys work their asses off 
for years playing strip bars, playing dives, playing backyard parties, playing all the sort of things you, you know, sweet 16 parties, all the things we could have just imagined Van Halen playing would just blow our minds. They did all that stuff for years and got a lot of honestly negative feedback from a lot of record companies saying you guys play out of date music your singer's not very good you know on and on and on and those guys never quit even when Gene Simmons couldn't give them a record deal they didn't quit and I think that would have made a lot of people say forget it if Gene Simmons can't get me a deal I'm done those guys didn't quit though and they were never afraid to play in small towns because I caught them up in Billings Montana and then a few years later they performed in Casper Wyoming they were mm-hmm. never afraid of any stage you know the, the, the great thing about the Van Halen story is that it really shows what it took to build an audience. I mean, today with social media, it's it's a very different deal if you want to build an audience. Those guys, even after they were signed, Van Halen, at the end of the book, I talk about how they come home after playing something like 180 plus concerts around the globe. They have sold 2 million records worldwide and they are $1.2 million in debt to Warner Brothers Records because they had kind of a rotten record deal. Their lawyer didn't do them very well and so on and so on. Um, and when it's happening, like you said, they decide there's, well, we're just going to go back to it. They play Billings, Montana. They play, you know, Green Bay, Wisconsin. They play every city and town across the country um, that had an arena. And these guys did it and they worked and worked and worked. And of course, we all look back in 1984, sort of Van Halen's big peak moment. You know, when you saw them in buildings, they were probably playing some sort of civic center or some smaller theater or something. They weren't, you know, they didn't go into these enormous stadiums right away. Um, they really worked. They really did. And it was a relationship with the fans. I'll tell you, the greatest thing I love about your book is that a lot of people think they know the entire story of Van Halen, but your book proves that you know the journey. And it really is a, a book that, that's going to open up the imaginations. And I, I'd like to actually go and look at the sales of the albums from this point forward, because I'll bet you you're going to be having people study that music big time. You know, I, I really do hope that people will especially look at the making of um, Van Halen 1. And one of the things I was able to do with the book, which was really great, I talked to Ted Templeman, I talked to Don Landy, who engineered all those records. And I talked to a couple of other people who were the assistant engineers. I looked at the studio logs and really put together a day-by-day breakdown of how they made that record and talked in great detail um, with Templeman and used all the interviews with Eddie and Alice to talk about how that album came to be. And uh, you're right. I mean, I think the one thing is that all the ingredients, the things we love about Van Halen were all in that first record. And that came from those years of work that I document in the book and the years of really writing songs, building a following and thinking about how to present themselves as a live act to where they go on stage with Black Sabbath and blow Sabbath off the stage. See, that's just a great rock and roll story. I mean, that's, that's what it is. Well, I mean, that was the thing. I mean, that was the thing I really wanted to emphasize to everybody is that you know, I have all the Van Halen books. I read them. I appreciate the fact they're on my shelf. But I really felt this was an untold part of the story. We all knew what happened after 1978. We all knew about, you know, every, every, if you read the magazine interviews, if you read the articles, you knew the story about Van Halen, um, you know, about the Pretty Woman video. We knew about... The, the world tours. We knew about these things, but I wanted to know what was it like when they played these biker bars? What was it like when they played what t-shirt contests? What was it like what, to have people, you know, have Van Halen play in your backyard and you have a thousand people there and the riot police come and shut down your, your party? These are the things that went on years before Van Halen became famous. Where no one outside of Los Angeles even knew what Van Halen was. And you know what that band all, always has been? Is that they've always been radio friendly. And I don't know if it's because they grew up listening to AM radio and they, they just always had that connection, but they've always, always, always taken good care of radio people. It's, it's uh, one of the great parts of the story 
is that I think if Eddie and Alex had not met David Lee Roth, I'm guessing if they had made it in a band without Roth, they would have been a much more a heavy rock, hard rock band. I mean, much more like a metal band. Those guys really were into Sabbath and, you know, the heavier Deep Purple, the really heavier stuff. And maybe wasn't as radio friendly. And then Roth came and brought his ingredients. And you know what you get? You end up with that sweet Van Halen sound with the harmonies, the great pop songs. And uh, yeah, it just gives you a little bit of both. And they did. They were great at serving up those singles. And we should give a lot of credit to Ted Templeman there, too, who is clearly a guy who understood Van Halen and said, we're going to make this this band um, a band that, you know, guys can love for the great rock songs, but that girls can love, too, for those, like you said, that those other ingredients, too. Can we officially call Ted the fifth Beatle? You know, I, I think I honestly think, you know, um, I honestly think he, when I talk to him, he's very modest. He doesn't take credit for things. But I think if you look at and listen to what Gene Simmons did with, with Van Halen, there's some of those demos are on YouTube. Just Google up Gene Simmons demo Van Halen. You can hear it. Um, it was very, very different. Now, Ted said, OK, we're going to make Eddie's guitar sound like it's the end of the world. And you know what Dave's good at? You know, he may not be the best technical singer in the world. He's not Ian Gillen. He's not Paul Rogers. He's not these great 70 singers, but he's got a certain thing he can do with his screams, his yelps, these other things. And Templeman, I think, really helped Dave with those chops to say, this is what you're good at. We're going to do this. We're not going to try to make you sing like Freddie Mercury. It's not going to work. And, uh, you know, you put all those pieces together with the Van Halen ingredients and then have Templeman um, kind of overseeing things. I just don't think he gets enough credit because he produced those albums brilliantly, in my opinion. Now, your book is officially out because I saw the picture of you up on Facebook, man, where you were like, it was, it's been released it's, or it's been, it, it's been sent to you. It is. Um, Amazon, I believe, will ship tomorrow, nice. on Tuesday. And uh, Van Halen Store has signed copies, author signed copies. It is shipping right now. So that's vanhalenstore.com. And uh, yes, it is out ahead of schedule. It's supposed to be out. Uh, about three weeks from now it came out earlier than expected so all good please pick it up and uh, I would be thrilled to hear from people they can drop me a note at Greg Renoff on Twitter or my Facebook which is uh, Facebook backslash Van Halen Rising man you gotta come back and talk rock and roll with us again anytime, anytime I love Harold. it real pleasure I love talking to you and I, I am thrilled to hear that you saw Van Halen in the upper, upper, upper reaches of the country, not in some big city. You saw them in the real world. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. where there's so much echo inside the auditorium that you really couldn't tell what song it was. <laughs> <laughs> but I bet you never forget the show. You're absolutely, well, I took three girls. Of course I didn't forget it. I, I did what David <laughs> Lee Roth would do. Come on. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> There's a difference between being a voiceover actor versus an animation voiceover actor. The changes, the challenges, the shows, and the not-so-shows. H. John Benjamin's resume is totally off the charts. He's always been in front of us, and yet we only hear his voice. Did you know that he was in 22 Jump Street? Parks and Recreation, Suburgatory, and even last week tonight with John Oliver. But you know him more for his voice. A voice that's appeared on American Dad, Family Guy, Archer, and Bob's Burgers. We are unplugged and totally uncut with H. John Benjamin. I'm good. How are you? Man, your wit and your edge put you at the forefront of how we need to be speaking openly in this country. Do you ever find yourself wanting to say something that you can't, but because it's iHeartRadio, we're going to let you? <laughs> uh, you mean I can say whatever I want? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> 
Uh, well, uh, fuck this. <laughs> so my wit is not really working well this morning. <laughs> I have looked at your resume and cannot figure out why Ryan Seacrest got the job on American Top 40 when you are the voice of America. I know. I mean, every day I wake up and say, why am I not Ryan Seacrest? <laughs> it's an awful, awful feeling to be him. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I, you know, look, uh, he does what he does and, uh, you gotta respect him. These, they're much different, uh, yeah, they're much different jobs. I don't think, uh, either of us could do what either of us do. You've never done radio though, have you? But yet you've got those golden vocals. Well, you're better than me. I'm, no, I'm trained to do this. I mean, no, but you I, I wasn't born with your voice. How do you train your voice to do that? What, what does it take? It's, it's those evil program directors that sit you down and say, you have to say it this way. No, there's too much. <laughs> wow, I had, a real, I had it really easy. I had no sit downs whatsoever. Yeah, but you did stand up comedy. I did. I mean, uh, yeah, that might have been, yeah, but I, I didn't have to change my voice that much. So that's been the easy route. Um, I'm sorry what you had to go through. You know, in, in stand-up comedy, there's a lot of the biggest names and those that are on the upcoming uh, side of comedy come into this room every week. Do you call comedy or doing that the comedy series a curse, or do you actually feel like that you're connected to people about ready to pee their pants? Uh, you mean when I do the animated shows? Or? Anime, and even when you were on stage doing doing comedy, because this this is something that you were born with, and you're such a natural at it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, mean, I don't really I think much about it. I'm glad people laugh, but when they do, although, you know, I've experienced the opposite many, many times, so I don't, you know... It's gone both ways. Uh, I still go up there. I, I, that's just, I think, out of habit at this point. Are you the Mel Blanc of this of this millennial generation? Uh, you know, if Mel Blanc had only two voices, <laughs> I think he had hundreds. <laughs> <laughs> I can't do a southern rooster at all. <laughs> See, there's, there's that wit and edge we started things off with. There you go. <laughs> we'll fuck this again. <laughs> now, being in the studio, when you're dropping tracks down for Bob's Burger, do you ever sit there and make yourself laugh? Uh, no, mostly the other cast members make me laugh. If that, I, I, I'm not laughing at myself that much, but with, with Bob's Burgers, we work together, and a lot of the people there are really funny comedians as well. Uh, so they'll make me laugh. Eugene Merman is a comedian who plays one of the characters. He makes me laugh a lot. John Roberts plays Linda. Uh, then Kristen Shaw, people like that. They're really funny, so it's fun to do the show. Now, this isn't a suck-up, but I really do plan my Sunday nights around Bob's Burger because I want to read the menu. Are you part of that menu at all with your writing skills? <laughs> no. Uh, no, the writers write all that stuff. Uh, I've yet to contribute to that. I've tried to contribute to the opening where they have, you know, next to the, uh, there's an extermination van that always pulls up. Right. And then there's a store that's constantly changing uh, ownership uh, or uh, changing businesses. Uh, I've written a couple of those. I'm not sure any have gotten on. But, you know, unless, uh, unless I get paid, I'm not doing any of that stuff. <laughs> now, Bob's Burger and Archer, you know that th those shows are going to be playing in 2056. 
Do, do you go into a? They, tell me that they're not becoming legendary. Um. I, yeah, that would be really good. I don't know if I'll be around, but they'll replace me. Well, you know, if you buy a parrot, it's going to be around. It'll still be around while everybody's long gone going, I want my money. I want my money. Oh, <laughs> uh, you mean the money, the money-grubbing parrot? Yeah. <laughs> I'll get one. To be honest, the shows, go, both of them are kind of getting better as they go along. So I hope they last a long time. And that's what's been fascinating about watching your career, because you've always been there, but we've never known you. And now you're stepping out like this. This is pretty interesting that that you're out. But at the same time, have you always been out? Uh, are you asking me if I'm gay? No, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that most people, because it's it's like Archer and, and Bob from Bob's Burger. Okay, we get it. It's the same person. But we haven't heard from you. <laughs> it's like The Shining. <laughs> oh my God. I've always been the butler. Uh, yeah, I've, uh, I guess. I mean, I've... Uh, yeah, being being a part of mostly animated shows, which I've, has been predominantly what I've done, uh, you know, you don't see me a lot. So uh, that's true. Um, but, you know, I'll try and get out there more. I'll try and step outside. Would you say that you've got the perfect face for animation or the voice of every American on this on this planet? I am not an attractive man. Uh but I've, you know, I have sexy parts. <laughs> There's a, like, you know, no one's perfect. Uh, I, yeah, I personally am not even sure about the voice. I, people like it. Uh, but, I, you know, I think it's also uh, the characters that I play. That's sort of a luxury when they're... When good characters are written, it's, it's, it's a lot easier to do. Are we going to see more of your writing up there then? Uh, I did write a Bob's Burgers episode with Hollis Lessinger, who's been one of the writers on the show from the beginning, and we've worked together on one. Uh, it was like a Tina story. I think it will be in this season. So I did write the, uh, Bob's Burgers, and I'm, you know, I, you know, yeah, I write, I write all the time. It'd be fun to see if Bob can get on get on a radio station there, and he competes against Howard Stern because I think you have the personality to take down Howard Stern. <laughs> I could, uh, yeah. Um, I, I'll uh, I, let's make that an official challenge. That's right. <laughs> I will take you down, Howard Stern. I promise. <laughs> do they call you H, Mister H? Do they call you John, Benny, Benji? I mean, or do they just say? I mean, every time you walk around, hi, H, John, Benjamin. Uh, that's happened a few times. That's always fun to listen to my whole name said. Uh, <laughs> H does stand for something, but uh, I've, I've yet to give it away. So uh, not many people call me H because I think they see the dot after it. So they know H. Uh, but a lot of people call me H dot. I love it. I love it. Well, H dot John Benjamin, you're you're fun, man. This show is your forever stage. Anytime you just want to come on, just uh, just uh, blow your mind out. Just go for it. All right, man. I, uh, uh, that, that's nice. I, I probably will not, but maybe. <laughs> oh, <God>. Have a brilliant weekend, man. All right, you too. Okay, bye-bye. Hey, it's Arrow. Inside the Arrow.net studio, we are unplugged and totally uncut with Daryl Hall from Hall & Oates. I'm doing very well.
I want to congratulate you on this brand new tour, 32 cities, stopping here in Charlotte on August 18th. You've become a tradition to us here in Charlotte because every year we, we get to see you. And, and, and it's such a treat to catch you live in concert. I love playing in Charlotte, man. It, it, what a, a city that has transformed. I mean, I, I've been coming to Charlotte for many, many years. What a difference it is now. Uh, and it's, it's such a vibrant scene there. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a great city. And it's got a great bookstore, one of my favorite bookstores in the country. Yeah, I heard it was a little professor over there at the Park Road Shopping Center. Yes, yes. So you do get the opportunity to get out and explore the cities that you're traveling in. Yeah, I try to. When I mean, when I have days off, I'm always out and out and about. Usually, to go to bookstores and things like that. You know, I try and uh, um, uh, try and find things to do. Your love for books have they inspired any songs? All of them. <laughs> I'm, I'm a literate creature. <laughs> No, I mean, you know, I, 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 as one reads, it, it, it causes me to, 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 to write things. I mean, I, I'm inspired by phrases that I read all the time, and I, I incorporate them in, or, you know, I paraphrase them and change them and, and, and incorporate them into my lyrics. To be so open with the songwriting, you have to be a student of music as well. Is that the reason why that, you, you know, like with Daryl's House and stuff like that, you've always educated your fans and followers? Yeah, I, I, I'm sort of an educator at heart. Um, I actually went to school to, to be a music teacher. Not that I, I ever really wanted to do that, but uh, I, uh, I, I think that, that turning people onto things and ideas and all that is just as important as, as, as the performance itself. Um, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it, it, I, I've always felt that way, and uh, I think Dallas is a very—it's sort of a learning experience. You learn about people. You learn about what the, your favorite artist, what he's like or she's like, and how they re- interact with uh, with me and my band. And it's—I it, it, learn from it, and you know, it's—it's it's a, it's a really interesting experience. 32 cities on this brand new tour. Do you find that, you know, because, you know, growing up in the music industry, everybody had their little pocket of energy. You had your Northeast versus your, 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 your Northwest and all that kind of stuff. Do you, do you have to rechange the music list, you know, to, to fit whatever region you're performing in? Not anymore. It used to be much more regional musically. I, when, I, when I started out with John and even before that, uh, it was very, very regional. And now, uh, I don't know, the world is, musical world has become much more homogenized, uh, and, and, but also fragmented as well. So it, it, it's a good, it, 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 I, think it's, I think it's a good time for music. I really do. I, I got to thank you for saving AM radio. I was at Jock, 7 Midnight Jock in, in, in Montana back in the 1980s. Everybody was going to this thing called FM, but you guys stayed strong with AM and, and, and kept us on the air. Well, there we go. Was, <laughs> I'm glad to have done it. What, what was that transition to go from, from into videos? Because it was no longer about Don Kirshner and, and the Midnight Special anymore. You guys really took over MTV. Well, it was something that we saw immediately and, and were dr- drawn into as being a, a, a brand new thing. Um, you know, music, tele- video, television was a, uh, it, it was quite a concept, and it, it, the impact, its impact was outrageous. I mean, and we were part of the very, very beginnings of it. I remember being a, a, a DJ, of, sorry, a VJ on that show, and they just said, "Okay, you got you got two hours, just wing it." And here's a list of videos you could play and just say anything you want. I was like, whoa, okay. I wound up doing all kinds of things on there. And it was, it was, uh, it, it was interesting times, for sure. Speaking of interesting things, I've always loved the story and the relationship between She's Gone and Sarah Smile. She's Gone was actually the first release, but it didn't really hook up to radio right away. Is it because it was a four-minute and 56-second-plus song? 
I don't know. It, it, possibly, it was uh, it was one of the songs that uh, Atlantic. It, it was early days, man. I, I think that it, it took people by surprise because it was different, and uh, and, uh, and 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 yes, it was it was cut to, to, as a full length song. Uh, it was actually, I think, five minutes long or something like that. And when they edited it down, whatever. But uh, yeah, it just wasn't time for it. And then, then suddenly it was time for it. That's the best way I could describe it. I was recently with Chris and Glenn of Squeeze. Dude, they are so stoked about being on, on tour with you. Yeah, they're great guys, man. I, I, I'm I'm very anxious to get out there on the road with, these, with, with Squeeze and KT. I mean, these are people I've known a long time. And... Uh, uh, you know, from back in the day, and and KT is a good friend of mine, and yeah, it's going to be a fantastic show. Being surrounded by so many brilliant songwriters like that, does that inspire you to maybe put a project together, a collaboration, a super band of sorts? Well, I don't know about a super band, but it certainly will inspire me. I guarantee you that. And who knows what'll come out of it? I don't know. I'm I'm working on a new album right now uh, that's probably going to turn into a a, a Daryl John album, and. Uh, uh, I, I'm looking for inspiration. I'm looking for you know interesting songs and writing writing situations. So I I can't imagine that something good won't come out of that. I mean, KT Tunstall has already invited me to her studio in LA. So I mean, you know, it's one of those. I, I was just reading an article that the hot new thing right now are songs that are a minute fifteen up to a minute thirty. Do, do you see that kind of a twist on your side of the music industry? Uh, I don't know, but I think that um, I, 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 everything has become more truncated. I, I think people's attention spans are changing. Uh, I know I know that the songs I'm writing right now are much shorter than, than uh, the songs I've I've written in the past, and I don't know. I'm not trying to do that. It's just I I think everybody just wants to get to the point and uh, and, and 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 do it, you know. And, and I think that that causes a truncation in the songs. Speaking of the songs, the set list, 32 stages. Are they going to be different? Well. It sort of uh, dictates itself because, and then it's just a matter of what order we're going to put them in. And we always try and throw, uh, throw in a few wild cards, songs that are a little less expected. So uh, uh, it's, it's a combination of those two things. With all that you have done over all of these years and decades, what's your greatest accolade? My greatest accolade is be able to play a, a sold out shows wherever I go. That, that's, that, that's all I really care about. You know what I love about Hall & Oates? Every time that I've seen you up on that stage, you, you look like that it's a fresh new beginning. You, you guys never get bored up there, do you? No, not at all. It energizes me. Well, I can't wait to meet you over there at the Little Professor Bookstore here in Charlotte on the 18th of Charlotte, dude, because, I mean, I, it's a great place to search for new ideas and new inspirations. There you go, man. Be brilliant today, sir. Thank you very much.